underreported listeners. I'm Nicholas Lemon. Thank you for joining our show. This week, I'm speaking with Washington Post media critic Margaret Sullivan. In Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy, her first book, Sullivan combines a deeply personal story about the Buffalo News, what it once meant to the community, and how sharply it has declined, with extensive original reporting in the United States and abroad on the overall phenomenon and what it means for our democracy. The story Sullivan tells is not a happy one, but this is a book meant to give rise to hope, not despair. Many people, some of whom you encounter in Ghosting the News, are working hard to bring local journalism back. Sullivan points the way to solutions. That requires first taking a sobering and clear-eyed look at the problem. Margaret, thank you for joining me over Zoom today. You're very welcome. It's very nice to be with you and your listeners. Um, so let me first uh, confess that, um, uh, I don't know if you have this problem, but I know a lot of people who aren't journalists. And, um, you know, it can be tough at times, but that's there are a lot of non-journalists out there. So when I run across these people and I talk to them about your book, I often get this kind of reaction. They say, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, first, the big problem in journalism is that the media are treating Donald Trump with kid gloves. And why, why aren't you publishing a book about that? And second, uh, there isn't less journalism. There's more journalism than ever. I feel like I can't get away from journalism. So, so I, I, I'd like you to start by just pushing back against those kind of arguments. You may get them too if you have the same uh, issue of knowing people who aren't journalists and give us a sort of reality check on that. Well, there is a great deal of information out there and people do feel overwhelmed by the news. So let's start with that piece of it. Um, but this uh, issue that I'm writing about in Ghosting the News is a subset of all of that all of that news and it has to do with local journalism. So it has to do with, with journalism that has traditionally been done largely by regional newspapers. So the Miami Herald, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Seattle Times, also of course by radio and television stations. Um, and also of course by weekly newspapers that are smaller and serve smaller communities. And it is that subset that is under siege in a very, a very extreme way uh, because it's been hit very hard by um, economic and social and technological issues that went to the heart of their uh, business model. So the business model, let's talk about mostly right now at least about newspapers. The business model for these local and regional papers was about 75% print advertising revenue and about 25% or a little bit more of subscription revenue. You know, there was a time and it wasn't that long ago when newspapers could easily have a 30% profit margin because this was the way advertisers like car dealers and grocery stores and others were able to get their message out. But then something happened and that something was called the internet. And it, along with some societal changes, has really kicked the legs out from under the, the business model of newspapers. And then, you know, as far as the question of what's the biggest problem in in the media world right now, 
it is a problem that Donald Trump puts down the media and, and adds to the mistrust and distrust that people feel in uh, their news sources. And it is a problem at times that the news media have treated him with kid gloves. Although I don't dismiss those things, but I think when we're talking about an informed citizenry that can go to the polls or do whatever they need to do in their communities, this actually may well be, and I think is, the most important journalism and media problem we have right now. Yeah, well, I certainly, I certainly agree with you about that. Before we get into some of the details, uh, let's just talk somewhat about your own personal story. Um, why did you, why and how and where did you go into journalism yourself? So when I was a kid, you know, probably a freshman in high school or something like that, the uh, Senate Watergate hearings were taking place. And, uh, you know, my family was, my dad was a lawyer and my mother was a school teacher. And, you know, we were, I have two older brothers. We were all completely mesmerized by, by what was happening in national politics. And we were sitting around the living room TV watching this. And, I, you know, I was a kid, really, but I was very compelled by it. And I remember having a conversation with my eldest brother, David, um, in which he, he sort of said, you know, what, what are you interested in doing someday? And I said, well, I really don't know. And we talked about, talked it through a little bit. And in a moment, somewhat reminiscent of that famous moment in the movie, The Graduate, where the word plastics is uttered, uh, my brother David, you know, pointed at me and said, journalism. And he was right, you know, and I, I don't think I've actually looked back. So, you know, I was the editor of my high school paper and I've been doing this thing for a very long time. Um, and, you know, more um, in terms of professional development and professional experience, when I got out of graduate school, so I went to Georgetown undergrad, I went to Northwestern's Medill School um, for a master's degree and when I got out, I had internship, summer internship offers at the two papers in my hometown of Buffalo. And my dad said, well, you know, I asked him what I should do. And he said, well, I think the Buffalo Evening News is the dominant paper. So I took the internship at the Buffalo Evening News, which then had been recently bought by Warren Buffett, the financier and sage of Omaha, as he's sometimes called. And within about two and a half years, the morning paper, the other paper, was out of business. So dad was right. Sometimes dads are right, and it's great <laughs> when they are. So that's, that's a little bit of my background. You know, this is a question I always ask my students, and the answer is always a blank stare, but maybe it won't be in your case. Uh, have you ever seen a movie called The, the Front Page or Play? Uh, I've heard of it, but I don't know that I've seen it. Well. Nobody's seen it. You really have to see it. It's it's the greatest screwball comedy of all time, and it, it's been made into many movies. Of uh, is it is it Rosalind Russell? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, I, that's I, the I one am that familiar with it. Yeah, and maybe um, Cary Grant. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. so the reason I ask is that presents life in a newsroom as um, a bunch of irresistibly charming, uh, uh, rollicking, unprincipled people 
who uh, drink a lot, misbehave, and cover sensational crimes. And it's hugely fun. Mm -hmm. uh, is that what life was like at the Buffalo News? Well, I will say that I find newsroom culture a lot of fun. And I do find it compelling and uh, funny and a great place to be. So I'm a, I'm a, to that extent, I think it's, it's somewhat true. There, there always have been a lot of newsroom characters. That kind of journalism seems to attract, you know, a kind of, you know, there's a, there are subsets, but, you know, there are the sort of curmudgeons and there are the, the iconoclasts. And, you know, I think more than your average uh, insurance office, it does attract some pretty interesting people and, it's a fun it's a fun atmosphere. You know, I don't think it's quite as extreme as what you're as what you're describing. There's another great movie, um, more recent than that, but probably from the nineties, called The Paper. Right, um, I remember that with and Mike with uh, with Glenn Close and 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 others. And that that it's I think it's sort of based on the Daily News, the New York Daily News. And that presents a very, very accurate portrayal of uh, of newsroom culture. Yeah, I mean, if we can just wallow in nostalgia for a minute, I'm sure you'll remember, and I do the days when, number one, the entire newsroom was like a cigarette factory. Yes. There were butts all over the floor, overflowing ashtrays yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and then there were these pneumatic tubes where the, they'd put the story and go whooshing off to the press room and then you hear the rumble of the presses and all those things that uh i guess uh, and there were actual typewriters you remember all that stuff i do i do although it was going away you know by the time i entered the business in the early 80s that world still existed but it was quickly changing uh certainly typewriters were, probably were in their last year in the right. buffalo news newsroom yeah. so um, um no i i, I uh I worked at the Washington Post long ago, and the when I worked, it was when they introduced, uh, they got rid of the typewriters and all the old guys in the newsroom said, what's this crazy word processor thing? Anyway, yeah. um, but talk, if you would, a little bit about the, the role the Buffalo News played in the community. Um, how many people worked there? What did they do? Sure. Uh, what was your interaction with the political and business systems and so on is, and you know, we, we haven't mentioned enough that you rose through the ranks to become the editor of the paper and served in that role as uh, for a long time as the first female editor. Right. Yes. Summer intern to editor in chief. It only took me 19 years. Right. If you hang around, if you hang around long enough, they give you the corner office, it seems. Um, well, I would not put this, I, I want to say up front that I, I wouldn't put it in the past tense entirely uh, that the Buffalo News was important to the community or, or was a force in the community. That is, that is still the case today. But when I joined it, it had 200 people in the newsroom, 200 reporters, editors, photographers, etc., editorial writers, columnists, Today, and I'll get back to how important that was, but today there, is, there are fewer than 100, probably more like 75 or 80. So that's a big drop. But I will tell you, it's nowhere near the, the size of the drop that's happened at a lot of other big papers. 
who probably had a bigger newsroom to begin with, more like 350, and might be down to 50 or 60. So when that happens, you can't do the things that we used to do. For example, cover every suburban meeting, uh, go to every suburban school board meeting, you know, not just the town councils, but the school board meetings, um, have deep sources in every local and regional agency. You know, the Department of Environmental Conservation, we covered that. We had a, uh, for example, someone covering um, just the Buffalo Public Schools. And then there was a, someone covering the suburban schools and someone covering higher education. Um, nowadays, I mean, I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you for sure there aren't three people dedicated to covering education. So it's probably one person and it's probably one person who shares, who also does other things, like comes in on the weekend and does police reporting. So you can't get as much done. I mean, this kind of journalism is a labor intensive and person intensive business. Um, so when you don't have the reporters to send out to things and to cultivate sources and to work on an investigative project, you don't get the stories you would have otherwise gotten, but you don't know what you don't know. Right. So let, I mean, I just want to spend a minute pushing on that. This in, I think has faded a bit in the last few years, but say 10 years ago, uh, you were, you would, when somebody would say what you just said, you'd get the argument, especially from sort of internet visionary types. Oh, but you don't need those people anymore because we have bloggers and we have citizen journalists and the first photo of X news event was posted online by somebody off their cell phone. So, so why do you need these salaried employee trained people who are reporters uh, in, in the online age? Well, I, I'll say, first of all, that those things are true. There are people who, who, there are citizen journalists, there are people shooting video, thank goodness. I mean, thank goodness there's people shooting video. Yeah, Our exactly. world would be very different right now if there weren't. So there's no question that the, the putting a little newsroom in your hand in the form of an iPhone has democratized journalism and in a, generally in a very positive way. At the same time, I won't say but, it's more of an and, at the same time, it is very valuable to have uh, someone who knows how to uh, and, and is accustomed to filing a freedom of information request uh, to dig out information. Someone who can be the recipient of a source or of a tip from a source who says, hey, I think you ought to take a look at this city budget in this particular category because there's something fishy going on there. These are things that uh, probably, you know, your average person is not going to be able to do, and they are things of great value. Yeah, and I mean, just to state the obvious, citizen journalists almost all the time don't interview people. What reporters do all day, it'll be obvious to you and me, but maybe not to everybody. That's what they do. They interview people all day. That's and right. so they're, they're sort of surfacing information that wasn't already in existence. That's right. Um, it's not just about recording information. It's about digging it out. Right. So a newspaper like the Buffalo News sort of sits between, uh, on one hand, you know, powerful entities in the community, the political leadership, the business leadership, and on the other hand, uh, ordinary citizens who vote. Yeah. Um, 
what kind of picture did you get from doing this job of running the paper of how each of those groups was was reacting to you or listening to you or interacting with what you were doing? Well, the powerful people in the community were trying to work us all the time. They wanted to come in and meet with the editorial board and try to get the Buffalo News to back their project or to be on their side when they were doing whatever it was they were doing. And that goes for government officials and it goes for real estate developers and all kinds of other you know, bankers. Um, they wanted the paper, which soon was the only paper in town and was a big power player on its own, uh, to be on their side. And journalists, particularly at the reporter level, but I've certainly felt this too, think that we're supposed to represent, hesitate to use this word because it can be misinterpreted, but ordinary people, regular citizens, and that the sort of maxim is that uh, journalism should um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's, you know, we like that. We're, we hold that close to our hearts, that, that we're not supposed to be in the pocket of these powerful forces. We're actually supposed to be um, representing um, the, the, the regular voter, the regular citizen, and telling them what they need to know. And there is a tension there, without a doubt. Um, you know, and in the, in the days when some of those powerful figures were also powerful advertisers, the idea that you were going to do a big expose of something at a major supermarket chain who just happened to be your second or third biggest advertiser, you know, there, there would be some issues that would come up around that, but we did it anyway. Right. And, and you, you, the picture you paint in the book, you, you, you feel like the paper has an effect both on the behavior of, you know, powerful people and on the behavior of what you called ordinary people. Yes. Um, and and the, you weren't just doing this for your own pleasure, right? Right, right. Oh, exactly. I, I mean, the effect that it would have on powerful people, particularly government officials, is a sense that someone was watching and, and we better be careful. Um, so that, I think, is very valuable. And for citizens, you want to give them the feeling that that the newspaper or other news outlet is looking out for their interests, is going to tell you what you need to know, and is going to use its resources to dig out the truth. You know, that's an ideal situation. It doesn't always play out that way, but that's that's what we want and strive for. Well, there's an example that you give um, in the book of what can happen. Uh, when you have a diminished news ecosystem uh, and politicians feel freer to be corrupt and voters don't know about it as much. Do you, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. This has to do with uh, a Buffalo area story, but not Buffalo proper. There was, until very recently, a congressman named Chris Collins. Chris Collins, Republican congressman from New York 27, um, was the first Cong member of Congress to endorse President Trump, was close to, um, you know, certainly echoed many of the, um, many of Trump's points of view and, and politics. The Buffalo News is Washington correspondent, and, and the paper still has a very good Washington correspondent, um, uncovered that 
Chris Collins appeared to be engaging in insider trading. He broke that story and followed the story. Chris Collins objected and called it fake news, echoing his friend in the White House, and um, even fundraised on the basis of how terrible the Buffalo News was being to him. Nevertheless, Chris Collins was indicted. After he was indicted, before anything else happened, he ran for re-election. And his opponent was uh, a Democratic town supervisor who normally wouldn't have had any chance in the district because it's been gerrymandered and it goes over s literally seven counties and it's very, very Republican. Um, but this Democratic town supervisor made a pretty good run for it. And in the areas served by bigger media, the Buffalo News, the radio stations, and more of the TV stations and so on, and the Rochester paper, people crossed the aisle to vote against Chris Collins. But this opponent, Nate McMurray, the Democrat, told me that when he got out into more rural areas that were far less served, underserved, let's say, by traditional media, he found that people in some cases didn't even know that their congressman had been indicted on insider trader charges. And he said to me that he would go into a diner or he'd go to a, a fair, he'd be campaigning, and people thought he was making it up about Chris Collins and, and the indictment. They just did not know about it. As it turned out, <laughs> cutting to the chase here, Chris Collins was reelected. He was not reelected though by the huge margin that he normally would have been because of the makeup of the district, but rather by half a percentage point, mm -hmm. a whisker. And, um, and the areas that were less served by the media, by, certainly by newspaper media, stayed pretty well in their, in their tribal partisan corners. They did not cross the aisle as much. And if they had, you know, it's very possible that McMurray would have won. It's, you know, it's hard to say, but he certainly thought that this was the case. And one of the counties that this took place in is Orleans County, which the University of North Carolina has dubbed a news desert. Mm -hmm. Now, I will tell you that in recent weeks and since the book was excerpted in the Washington Post, I've heard from a place called the Orleans Hub, which is an all digital site that has one and a half reporters. And they tell me they did a heck of a job covering this race and people should have known. However, if it's not a news desert, it is underserved by news. And it's one of the places that McMurray said people didn't really know, what, many people did not know what was going on. So it's really a, it's a story about what happens when people are informed and what happens when people are less informed. And it's, you know, it has, it has pretty big stakes. This is, this is somebody we sent to Congress. Oh, I guess I should tell you the end of the story, which was that uh, Chris Collins was, he, he pleaded guilty to two uh, felonies and was sentenced to prison. That concludes part one of our discussion with Margaret Sullivan author of the new book, Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. As a reminder, you can find this book in all of our Columbia Global Reports titles at globalreports.columbia.edu.
Again, that's globalreports.columbia.edu. We'll be back with part two next Monday, so be sure to keep an eye out. You can find us wherever you're listening now. I'm Nick Lemon. Thank you for listening.